Hey y'all, this is Benny, the host of the Last Week at Podcast. Before we really get into this week's episode, I just wanted to say that it's been great fun for me and my co-host Mayank to use this podcast as a medium to chat with an incredible area of guests from all over the world on a variety of topics in the cricketing universe. For a couple of amateur podcasters, this is all possible due to Spotify for podcasters. And if you want to get in on this as well, here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer, so no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then, you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. As added features, video podcasts are also now available on Spotify. And when you want to take conversations with your fans to the next level, Q&A and polls are the best way to get them talking. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. So if you have an idea for a podcast, give it a try. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com podcasters to get started. Hello and welcome to The Last Wicket, a cricket podcast that, much like New Zealand batsman Daryl Mitchell, will impress you if you just give it a chance. I'm your host, Benny, and thank you for tuning in. This week, I'm joined by my co-host, Mike, as well as special guest, Luke Sutton. Luke is a former wicketkeeper and batter with over 15 years of experience in county cricket, including stints with Somerset, Lancashire, and Derbyshire. Uh, these days, he is an agent to a number of high-profile sports and media stars. He has written books such as The Life of a Sports Agent, The Middleman, and Back from the Edge, in which he tells his own powerful story in battling and overcoming mental health and addiction issues. Now he is out with his most recent book, Welcome to the Wonderful World of Wicked Keepers. So in that vein, a wonderful welcome to a Wicked Keeper, Luke Sutton. Luke, thank you for joining us on The Last Wicked. Absolute pleasure. Very nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So, so Luke, uh, I want to kind of straight away get into the role of sports agent. Um, now, this is something that we hear, you know, the term being thrown about. Um, but I, I would say for most fans or, or for most lay people in general, when they think sports agent, they probably think of you know, something glamorous like they depict in the movies and TV shows, you know, the jet setting lifestyle. Uh, so maybe hit us with some truths. I know you have, you, uh, you know, I mentioned uh, the book that you had written earlier, uh, The Life of a Sports Agent, The Middleman, which I really want to read. Uh, but for those of us who haven't read it yet, can you give us a kind of like a taste of or just a snippet of the life of a sports agent just in terms of how do you get into it? Do you know the players approach agents, or is it the other way around? Yeah. Okay. So it's um, if I start with um, you know my what, what it's like to be an agent, and I think partly on how people view agents from the outside in. Um, I think everybody has a perception of it based on on something they've read or seen, much like every, most things in our life. So the Jerry Maguire film, I think, kind of. Uh, uh, Tom Cruise and Jerry Maguire. Show me the money. Exactly that. That um, <laughs> you know that made a, a great 
great impression of what people thought the life of a sports agent was. And and the f- right. the funny was funny thing is is that that film in some ways was was really really accurate, and some ways was obviously a bit too Hollywood and kind of not not the nuts mm-hmm. and bolts of it all. Um, I think ultimately as a, as an agent you are, and the first thing I want to say you're in an extremely privileged position because you are very close, especially if you manage very high profile people who are exceptionally talented. Um, you know, I've been fortunate to manage cricketers who were, who are, and way were way more talented than I ever was. So I, as much as I know cricket, and I could obviously play at a at a high standard, um, to be that close to someone who's who's sort of bordering on genius levels in whatever sport they are is a real privilege. And you, you're part of the backstory, so you know about the injuries, you know about the off-field pressures, you know about the confidence crisis, you know about the hard work, the dedication. And so when you see that crowning moment on, on a sporting arena or in a sporting arena, it's, it's, it feels extremely special. Um, and so it is a really privileged position. But I think ultimately as an agent, you, you are a middleman. You're a middleman of mm. lots and lots of people trying to get more out of a situation. Um, uh, you know, fans wanting more out of their superstars, superstars wanting more money or more more accolades or more um, support, sponsors wanting more time, journalists wanting more column inches, everyone wanting more in some way or another. And as an agent, you kind of sit in the middle of it all, trying to protect your agent and, and make sure that the whole thing runs as smoothly as it can. So so for, for, for argument's sake, you, you take a contract negotiation. Ultimately, a, a, a contract negotiation will be happening because um, a club wants a player and a player is interested in staying at the club. There's a mutual want there. But the negotiation is because you have to be the middle person to make sure that no one falls out in that situation. And so you're often in the middle of all these these quite pressurized dynamics. Um, and as a result, that, that means that you can often be the first person to be blamed. And that's why agents often you see in, in the media, they're blamed for things. And that's because in those dynamics, people don't want to blame each other. So they'll tend to blame the middle person. You know, the contract negotiations broke down because of the agent is often what you hear. And actually the agent is representing his, his or her clients or, or might be re- representing the club. Um, and you, you have that real role as the middleman. So I, I think it's a, it's a very privileged and wonderful position to be in. But it comes with its challenges. And if you go into wanting to be an agent, you think it's all going to be glitz and glamour. And there is a bit of that. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but if you think it's all going to be about that, then then you're going to get a few shocks. You know, you've got to be prepared to sit in high pressurized situations and know that you're probably going to be the first person to be blamed if things go wrong. But it's it's a great privilege to do it. Um, and I think the last bit of your question about how you get into it, people get into it in, in many different ways. I came, I did from the fact that I played professional cricket and I already had a, a business up and running in sport in another area of sport. And when I came towards the end of my career, management seemed like an obvious path for me to go into because I knew the game, I knew players. I also knew the business world um, and, it, and it gave me a way in. But other people come in by doing work experience for more more uh, experienced uh, agents, someone like myself, or they build their own portfolio 
they just have good contacts and they network and they meet players and they build up their own contacts. There's, there's a variety of different ways, but it's um, it's a wonderful industry to be involved in. You know, I, I was just thinking as you were, you, you know, you kind of mentioning it earlier. Uh, I was wondering if the similarity between a sports agent and a wicket keeper is that, you know, you notice them when something has gone wrong. Is that fair to say? Because I feel like you hear about agents in the news when typically there has to be some sort of explanation for the players, you know, uh, something. So have you dealt with, uh, how do you, or let me phrase it this way. How do you deal with those incidents where you have to do damage control for a player? Is that really the role of a sports agent or is it more of like a PR related exercise no I, th- I think as an agent you, you have to be you have to have some ability in lots and lots of different areas you, you have to have an understanding of lots of different areas you, you're also a kind of flow of information between lots of parties you know you talk about pr there or you're you're the link between a pr agency and the client you know you're you're that that kind of go between so you have to have an understanding of it all even if you actually require specialized help in an area um but I think I, I always look at it in a slightly different way. I, I think my role is to help the young person get the absolute most out of their career. And and I don't try and, well, I, do, I, I genuinely don't pin that on one particular area. It's not like they have to earn the maximum amount of money out of it. It's not that they have to play for as long as I envisage them being able to play. It's me having an understanding of, of what they want from their career and helping them get the most out of it. And everybody's different. You know, everybody wants some their careers to be shaped in slightly different ways. Some people don't want any outside um, distraction other than the sport they're playing. And therefore, my role is to help them do that. Other people want to earn their money and support their family their, and their extended family. My role is to help them do that. Some people, it's to earn lots of money from commercial partners and be a kind of commercial machine and then that's my role um it's it, i think it's a really important thing as an agent is to know it's not your career you're not commander-in-chief you're an advisor a facilitator and a, an assistant in many ways and if i i always stick close to that mantra of i'm there to help people get the most out of their career what they want then i can't go too far wrong I'm also curious, you know, you kind of mentioned the commercial aspect of it. You know, when I think of cricket that was probably played in the early 2000s, I don't think cricketers were necessarily glamorous. You know, even if we just, let's just take English cricket, for instance, right? If compared to footballers, you know, like cricketers were were not as well-known or as glamorous, uh, probably not until Flintoff came into the picture, but now... With the explosion of you know t20s and franchise cricket there's a lot more money involved in the game and players are a lot more in demand so how has the role of sports agent with uh, when uh, in in relation to cricket do you feel that has evolved over the last 15 years and how's that how does that affect your job it's evolved enormously i mean 15 years ago or long sorry longer than that i'm forgetting my age um, when I first started being an agent in 2011, okay, so 11 years ago, 15 years ago, there was very few agents in cricket, very few agents. In 2011, I 
began, started managing Jimmy Anderson. And we used to have a meeting of all the agents who managed the main England players with, with England cricket to kind of talk about what was relevant, you know, all of those sorts of things. We used to have a meeting once a year and there was four of us. And we were the, ma- the four agents who looked after all the England players in the squad. Now, I don't know, there must be close to 100 agents just in English cricket, maybe more. Um, and it's evolved enormously. And, and the reality is that's because I don't, I don't think of a sport that's evolved as much in the last decade as cricket. I can't think of another sport, you know, format, money, broadcasting rights. It's changed massively, enormously. Um, and I think the demands on, and I'm going to say international in inverted commas, cricketer, is now greater than it's ever been. Um, it's more complicated than it's ever been. You can have players who don't play uh, international cricket as in playing for their country, but they're playing in franchise cricket all over the world, going from one country to another, playing in big tournaments, IPL, PSL, BBL, 100, you know, moving around all the time, earning excellent money. But the demands on them are huge. And um, so the the role of the agent has has really moved forward because it's required. The players need that support. They need, um, they need somebody to help them organise their lives, organise their, their contracts, where they need to be at what time, um, you know, what's required from them on travelling around the world as much as they do, visas, passports, you know, COVID threw into a whole nother level of, complication of that so the jobs evolved enormously just as the game has done in the last 10-15 years that's so fascinating uh you know through this podcast we've, we've spoken with so many people who, with different roles you know professionally in cricket and uh before we start uh, before we start talking to them we feel like we have a very surface level understanding and then when we do end up talking to them we realize there's so much to it and same way with what you're doing. Uh, is it fair to say that you're enjoying it now? You you enjoy the role? You enjoy the challenges? I, I enjoy it enormously. And I, I think in the last two or three years, I've, I've really found a place where I'm really happy with the work I do. I really enjoy the role I have with players. I, I've gotten, I feel like I've I found a nice balance in understanding how I can best do my job and be creative and understanding and empathetic um, and making the most important thing for me within my role. And it does sound a bit Jerry Maguire, but is, is don't make decisions based on money. Uh, you know, in, in high right. profile sport, um, the money will sort itself out eventually, you know, and you have to be smart and make smart decisions. But if you rule your decision making as an agent based on money, you make poor decisions and it bites you back. Um, and I, I not not to say that I was doing that. I've done that much throughout my whole career, but in this certainly in this last three, four, five years, I just really focus on that. I'm doing doing things for the best possible reasons, and and it and it seems to take nice. care of itself. Everything looks after itself. That's great to hear because that kind of segues nicely into what we wanted to talk about another important facet not just in sports but just in life generally um especially with all the events of the last few years you know mental health is something that i feel more and more people are becoming aware of in terms of taking care of your mental health as well as you focus on your physical health um and then it 
especially as it relates to sports and cricket. Uh, I feel awareness of it has increased exponentially over the last few years. Um, and, um, and especially with, you know, all the COVID related isolations and quarantines, there's been a lot more discussion about how do we take care of, uh, men, uh, mental health among athletes, but also people involved with the game, like coaches or umpires, you know, that kind of thing. Now you have gone through, uh, some struggles towards the end of your career, uh, which you talk about in your book back from the edge, um, can you talk to us a little bit about what you went through and what you learned from it? How did you deal with it? And just what can you share that might encourage uh, anybody going through similar struggles? Hmm. Well, my, my story itself was one of kind of complete breakdown, to be perfectly honest, and then rebuilding myself. And I, I, I don't really, you know, I never... Um, it's like when I share my experiences, I don't wish that on anybody, you know, effectively their whole life falling apart and them having to rebuild it. But that was just my experience. And I think really it was the fact that I led a way of living my life that, that cricket dominated within it, which I thought worked for me, you know, the way I handled pressure, the way I dealt with just trying to be the best I could all the time. But really, I was just a pressure cooker building up all the time. And and as, as my career went on and I had other difficult things happen in my life, I dealt with that pressure worse and worse and worse. And, and my mental health suffered. And then a very bad relationship with alcohol came in, it came into it. And it, it all just completely spiraled out of control. And, you know, I ended up going in a rehab facility and had to, to rebuild my life. And um but I think, it, you know, it does give me a perspective on a lot of the mental health issues we, we find in society and in um, and in cricket, particularly as a sport. It's really open about the you know, number of players who struggle. And I think as a sport, we deal with it magnificently and that the, the conversation is alive and it's not it's not a um, embarrassment or a shame to talk about it, which I think is wonderful. Um, but my biggest lessons from it from that I would say to somebody else is that if I just deal with cricket to start with is that as a cricketer, as a, as a elite sports person, you are utterly obsessed by your sport, utterly obsessed. You, you, you want to be the best you can possibly be at it. And you're going to push everything else out of the way. It defines you. It motivates you. It inspires you. It just is you. And you are defined very much by it. Now, that's really normal for an elite sports person, but it can cause problems because, you know, if you're defined by it, then the success of it or the ups and downs of it mean you move up and down as a person. And, you know, if you suddenly reach the top of the world, you think you are top of the world. And if you collapse and fall apart, then you think you have collapsed and fallen apart. And actually, you're not, you're, you're just a human being playing sports and you just happen to be really, really good at it. And for my clients now, the big thing I try and remind them is that you're not defined by your sports. You know, you are that you're defined by the human being you are and, you know, the, the husband or the brother or the son or daughter or wife, whatever, um, you're defined by what type of human being you are. You just happen to play sports at an elite level. 
and and it's always being able to bring people back to that kind of grounding of who they really are and you know guys who go on to you know I've managed clients who won Olympic gold medals sometimes the best thing to do after they've won Olympic gold medal is go and spend some time at home you know go and go and spend time with their family go back to their first club and ground themselves to not think that now they've made it they are now defined by that but and i and the reason for all of that is i i think it leads to a lot of mental health challenges um and then if you add on to in cricket particularly that layer of a cricket match cricket's slow isn't it it's a slow examination test cricket is called test cricket because it's a test it's testing every part of you right and it's that slow examination which is it wears you down it's tiring you're away from home a lot you're isolated in hotel rooms a lot and then you add covid in with the, the covid bubbles it, it it just added another layer of pressure onto the mental health of players and 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 obviously some really really suffered in that which i think is is not unsurprising um and the 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 the, the the answers to it are never straightforward because that, that if it was that easy, we would have or we'd all be steering clear of it right now. These things tend to creep up on people and be part of their life before they've even realised it was even there. Um, but we just have to keep the conversation going, give players the freedom to speak up when they're struggling, um, and really remind players that they're not defined by successes and failures. They're not, they're defined by the human beings they are and, um, and what, you know, where, what they are at home. The sport bit is, is the kind of icing on the cake and it's to be enjoyed and understood and balanced, but not let it cripple you. So it, you know, it strangles your mental health. You know, I, I wonder how easy or hard it is for younger or upcoming players. You know, you, you mentioned you've managed someone like, uh jimmy anderson but i'm wondering in this day and age let's say there's a 20 21 year old cricketer who's just you know kind of breaking through is making waves but then kind of hits this maybe he's going through a string of poor performances and there's a lot of you know ex-players throwing you know throwing their views about what's going wrong um and then you have you know fans on social media <laughs> trolling you for your poor, poor performances um, how e easy is it to talk to such a player and say, you know, this is not what defines you and mm. kind of, I feel like when you're older and you've seen more, um, again, taking the example of Jimmy Anderson, he's, he's seen so much in his career that I feel like he's probably in a better space to take that, you know, into account and have the big picture in mind. But what what are the challenges do you see for younger players who are dealing with this hypercharged environment where everyone has their thoughts and views on what he should or should not do? Yeah, it's a great question. And, the, and um, there's no question that it is a real challenge for young players, especially, you know, I didn't grow up on social media. Social media became part of my life as, a, you know, as I got older, but nowadays young players that they're being born and basically all they've known is that social media has been around and um and that's very different and, and having that kind of immediate platform to go on and get um affirmation or criticism immediately is dangerous for players 100 percent. but i think if you're someone close to them 
you've got to do your best to protect them within that, you know, and, and kind of that Michael Afton always talks about on commentary, you, you, you're never as good as everyone says you are and you're never as bad as everyone says you are, you know, you're somewhere in the middle and it's, it's really true. Right. And, um, and it's kind of protecting young players to at times pull them away from social media and disconnect from it for a period of time if it's required. That, that's really important. And, and, and allowing them to, to come away, pull away from it, find some space so that it isn't just digesting their 24-7. You know, they're going to bed thinking about, you know, I need to be doing that. What happens if this happens? What happens if that, that, that isn't sustainable? But to be able to pull them away, allow them some space away from the game to stay grounded, um, you know, find that gap that doesn't eat them alive over what's going on. Because by nature, elite sportsmen are going to do that. They're going to be completely obsessed by it. But the very best are the ones who find this space between performance and allowing themselves to breathe a little bit at times and, and find that space to calm their mind and then they can go back to it. Um, guys who are consumed by it 24-7 and don't find an escape, they just burn out super quick. And I guess um, one other question on mental health is you, you mentioned, you know, how it often creeps up on players um, without them realizing. So do you have any advice in terms of some sort of a check-in that they should do on a regular basis um, just to see how they're doing mentally and, and uh, you know, that way it's sort of an indicator of, you know, their progress in, in their mental health? Because I know all these players have physical health indicators which they constantly track. Uh, do you think having a mental health indicator is also probably a good idea? I think it's a great idea. Yeah, I really do. I think, um, uh, and I, and to be honest, a lot of teams are putting things in place. International teams ha- having someone near the setup who, you know, there's there's a psychologist, there's a fitness coach, there's a physiotherapist, there's the, the cricket coaches, but having someone there also who's effectively like a a check-in type person you know some sort of pastoral care type person who can just check in them once in a while go how are you how are you sleeping you know it's, it's a mental health struggles of often early sign is sleep and problems with sleep how are you sleeping how's things at home how are you how are you finding yourself at the moment and they're just checking in all the time and i think it's just having that outlet but also just having that um freedom that it can be talked about you know i i know from my time it might well, when i first started playing it just no one talked about it you know if you dare it just wasn't even known it was just like get on with your struggles type of thing uh, but do it quietly um which caused 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 a lot of problems for people over the years but i think just there being a space that players know that they can talk about it they can say, Do you know, I'm, I'm struggling a bit at the moment. I'm finding I'm finding touring really difficult at the moment. I'm finding I've been away from home for four and a half months and I'm I'm really struggling with it. A player has that freedom to say it rather than listen, get on with it. You're an international sportsman, just get on with it. You, you don't know how lucky you are. I think it's just whatever whatever environment they're they're in, the the coaching setup allows space for players to be able to talk up like that with someone there and that kind of non-judgmental space that players can can say something absolutely that that makes sense um i guess switching gears a little bit we also want to talk about your recent book on wicket keepers um and and the role of a wicket keeper is critical i think anybody who's you know watched cricket for any length of time will would have noticed that but 
Um, in your book, you mentioned, you know, that you're there to make others look good and your fingers and back will never forgive you. Um, as a wicked keeper yourself, do you think it's something you can learn to grow or do you need to be just some a little bit natural to really be a elite level wicked keeper? Um, it's a great question. It's, it's something that I, I've really kind of tried to dig into in the book as much as anything. You know, what what is a wicked keeper? People people often have perspectives on it, but um, you know, what what is what is it what does it mean to be a keeper? Um there's no question that having natural ability in anything in life helps, doesn't it? You know, what, what, what could be writing a book if you're, you're more naturally talented at doing it than someone else, it helps. So so being a wicket keeper, having good hand-eye coordination, being agile, being able to move nicely, um, that that's going to help you. But I think what especially came loud and clear in the book is that there has to be fundamentally for a wicketkeeper to reach the highest level, a deep desire to do the job, to do this sometimes thankless job that hurts and that is there to tidy everything up, take your catches, make not, not be seen too much. And, you know, if you're, if you're seen too much often for the wrong reasons, you know, you've, you've made a mistake. Um, and to do it day in day out whether you've got broken fingers or not to be going keep going keep going keep going keep going and that fundamental desire to do it if someone has got that then that can overcome a lot of deficiencies in natural ability you know i think even jack russell talks about it in the book and jack was you know maybe the the most brilliant i ever saw um and looked so phenomenally natural. But he, he says in the book, most importantly, they've got to want to do it. They've got to have that desire. You can have all the natural ability in the world, but if you don't have that desire to be a wicketkeeper and, and take on everything it involves, then you're not, you're not going to be able to do it long term. So it's that desire that's the key, I think. And, and as you were mentioning Jack Russell, I was also thinking over the years, I feel like, the technique of wicket keepers has evolved quite a bit. Um, uh, I think we used to see a lot of, you know, um, traditional wicket keepers who were very focused on that skill. Um, and then it became a thing where we were okay getting batters who can do wicket keeping, but their technique wasn't as natural. I think MS Dhoni is a prime example where I feel like his technique evolved over the years and he obviously became very solid at w- what he was doing. But eventually there was like a question around the way he used to work around things. Uh, do you think that just a, a way the setup of cricket is today, uh, where there's a lot more flexibility for players to evolve as as they like, or do you think it's just the way wicket keeping has evolved? No, I, I think um, I think cricket evolves generally. I mean, look at techniques also for batsmen and bowlers over the years have changed a great deal. You know, um, and you get people who come along who who kind of rewrite the rule book as to what something Lassif Malinga in, in fast bowling, Murali in, in spin bowling, you know, they, they came along and it, and then suddenly people were like, Oh, actually you could do it like that. That's different. I never did, you know, a different way of setting up. I remember watching Kevin Peterson bat for the first time. He, Kevin's just a little bit younger than me. And, and they, he'd, he'd be hitting out swingers through mid wicket with a flick of the wrist in England. And I was thinking, you know, you can't play like that. And then by the end of the summer, everyone was like, oh, no, that's exactly how we should be playing, you know, and, and you know, that's that's how the game evolves. And wicket keeping's no different to that. 
I think that the thing for wicket keepers nowadays is that the role of the wicket keeper has never been put under as much pressure. It's never been pulled in, in so many different ways because of the different formats in the game and the way that teams need to be balanced and, and the wicket keeper fitting that role of balancing a side. Um, but, you know, when you're talking about balancing a side in the white ball format, that will often mean whacking the ball out the park. So you mean you need to be able to hit the ball hard. Now, if you're going to hit the ball hard, you've got to be strong. You've got to have have fast hands. You've got to have athletic ability to be able to do that, which has meant the shape of wicket keepers physically has changed. You know, from tiny little men who, you know, like little jack jack in the box type um, physical aspects to bigger guys because they could hit the ball further. So, I think that has meant that wicket keeping techniques evolved along with that size change and there's a lot more bigger wicket keepers now than than there were 20 30 years ago that that's you know undeniable um and i but i think technique evolves all the time and there's things you know there, there was times when jack russell did his didn't change his technique in a certain way and we'll change with him i wouldn't even i didn't even think about it there's one point where he when he was standing back he used to sort of lean a little bit or focus a little bit more towards the offside and we all just started doing it because Jack did it you know and it'll be no different today with with some of the top keepers out there they'll suddenly find something that works for them and it will move everyone else's techniques in the game alongside it it, it, it is part of a natural evolution you know I'm curious um, we hear this all the time that the arrival of Adam Gilchrist uh, on the international scene redefined what a wicked keeper should do for the team because it was not just about the keeping but it's also being uh, a hard hitting batter or at least coming in and stabilizing the inning innings or rescuing the innings that kind of thing um how much of you how much of that do you think is actually true it's very true um it, he okay. redefined the yeah he redefined the role enormously i mean he, he re- redefined it in ways in which were even a little bit more subtle in that if you imagine that you're a wicketkeeper batting at seven in test cricket, batting at seven in long form cricket means that often you can be facing the second new ball. That That's what can often, you know, the new ball comes along at whenever 80, 90 overs. You're, you're, you can often be in when the second new ball comes along. So there was a, a thought at that uh, before Gilchrist that you know if you're the wicketkeeper you have to kind of see out the second new ball that was kind of your role as a batsman type of way as, as a wicketkeeper and then Gilchrist came along and attacked the second new ball you know he he didn't he didn't sort of see it out right. he was seeing it out the park you know he was he just redefined that whole kind of counter-attacking option I'm not saying there weren't counter-attacking players before him but for his role in that wicketkeeper of, of, of providing this balance in the team, he just completely changed the dynamic of it. And uh, I mean, it got, he put people to England to sword many a time. And it just meant that all the coaches after that, they all wanted their version of, of Gilchrist. And, you know, I, I, I right. talk about Garant Jones in, in the book. I did, a, I love talking with him for the book and, you know, he was Duncan Fletcher, Fletcher's version of that. And Duncan Fletcher was, you right. know, quite open about the fact that he was okay with his wicketkeeper dropping a couple of catches as long as that they could counter-attack and be that kind of attacking player at batting at seven or eight. And everyone was really just searching for their Gilchrist. The one thing I would I would add to that, and people forget, 
Gilchrist was exceptional with the gloves as well. He was exceptional. He was an exceptional right. keeper. He might not have been exceptional when he started, but by, you know, for the 80, 90% of his career, he was exceptional with the gloves, keeping to Shane Warne, keeping back to McGrath and Gillespie, the likes, Brett Lee. He was phenomenal. Very, very rarely made a mistake. Um, and people focus on the, what right. he did with and the bat, but he was brilliant with the gloves. Right. And and that's what, uh, you know, the point that I was trying to make is, so the emergence of Gilchrist, you know, that, like you said, okay, true, he did re- redefine the role of a wicketkeeper batter in modern cricket, but it almost seems to have come at the expense of genuine <laughs> wicketkeepers, if I can use that term. You know, you mentioned uh, Geraint Jones. I'm also thinking of James Foster, who was supposedly the best keeper uh, pure, pure wicket keeper in county cricket at that time, but didn't really get too many chances. And, and now, when you think of it, you know, Joss Butler was preferred uh, more times than Ben Folks uh, till you know till Folks has now become the permanent keeper. And even in India, you know, Dhoni. Well, Dhoni is kind of in a different category, but uh, he was always first preference when it uh, came over to someone like uh, Riddhiman Saha, who many consider to be the best wicketkeeper in India. So do you feel like that's, would it be fair to say that's been a downside to this emergence of, you know, this dual role that a wicketkeeper uh, needs to be both as a keeper and as a batter, that it's come at the expense of genuine keepers who are really, really good at their role? Um, It's a sort of pause in answering this. I guess my answer is yes. But I think what people forget is that, uh, yes, it, it, it has placed a greater emphasis on batting, which is therefore maybe taken away from that, that specialist wicketkeeper. But, uh, and I, so I agree with that, but, but how many actual specialists survive in the game now generally? You know, how many bowlers who cannot bat at all play in a team? It's not, you know, think of think of the West Indies era back in the kind of eighties, seventies, and eighties. You know, their tail started after Jeff Dujon, didn't it? Seven, and then you know, no one could bat at eight, nine, ten, eleven. That was the t- tails were long. Nowadays in Test cricket, you might only have one or two players who can't bat, and even now for spinners, there is a, a challenge if they can't bat. They don't balance the team very well. So suddenly, even with spin, it's, it, it becomes this kind of more effectively just wanting more from the team. So it definitely has happened, but I don't think it's just exclusive to wicket keepers and, and that kind of demand. I also think that um, Joss Butler is a great example and, and Joss is in the book and I, I don't know of a, of a more humble superstar in my life. You know, he was amazing to talk to about wicket keeping, but he he would not have survived in test cricket as long as he did if he was making continuous mistakes with the gloves. He wouldn't. It would have had to have changed. You can't, you know, I I agree with the sentiment that, okay, maybe some of the specialism of wicket teams being left behind for guys who can bat. But the demands on those guys to be able to hit a standard are still there. 
that they still they still have to be really really good and you know Josh Butler went on tour just before I wrote the book I, I think he was in England we're in India in Sri Lanka and he kept exceptionally well on those tours exceptionally well now if he had gone and just had a nightmare with the gloves then he would have had to have scored 100 every every innings to in order to justify it there's still that demand on the gloves you know that 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 it, the dynamics shifted but it's but it can't be what I'm saying is that it's not got to a place where it's like, oh, whatever, you know, we don't care how they keep, let, as long as they can bat. It hasn't gone that far. And I think that's a great point because um, as I was thinking through, you know, you were making that point and I was thinking, well, today's keepers, they may not seem technically really pure all the time like Saha does or Ben Folks does, but they don't necessarily miss a lot of chances. They're still very solid. They may not be as eye-pleasing or they may not, you know, they may not walk to the ball. They might have to end up diving to make sure they catch it or something like that. But um, but effectiveness-wise, there's uh, they're right up there. I don't think there's been a big drop in the standard of, you know, glove work behind the stumps. Would you agree with that? Uh, yeah, I think it's... Um, it, I, I, I'm not uh, answering it because it's a difficult one to, to answer. I, I think... Standards are still very high. I just think that sort of purity of the wicketkeeper, it doesn't quite exist in the same way. But I think the whole game's evolved, you know, and then and I think um the purity of just being this this guy who's just exceptional with the gloves, who bats at ten, who doesn't really offer that much for the bat, that just doesn't exist anymore. You know, you, you they have got to be able to but it but it's right. same so we have lost something in that. And that's undeniable, but the standard of wicket keeping is still very high. Growing up, uh, when, you know, as kids, when we used to play cricket, uh, you know, when we used to like, just among friends, we would uh, divide into teams and, you know, everyone is given a role. The wicket keeper uh, uh, position was the least preferred position. Uh, it was always like the person who could barely bat, who couldn't bowl, was <laughs> relegated to that position. So at least for me, and I feel like, uh, I think it's fair to say in India at that point, uh, and I'm talking about like late 90s, early 2000s, the wicketkeeper position was not really a, covet, a coveted position because we didn't really have um, many great wicketkeepers to boast about um, till kind of Emma's Zoni burst into the scene, mainly for his batting. But even with his keeping, what I've noticed uh, over the years is how fast his hands are. And there are like, compilations on youtube just you know his fast stumpings and you know people compare that with sarah taylor for instance she's also very similar in that you know her fast glove work um so i always think if i had to pay just to watch a wicked keeper behind the stumps like do his thing uh that would be ms doni do you have any any players in mind like that where you think i would pay to watch this person keep all day um, yeah, well, I did as a kid. For me, it was it was Jack Russell and Ian Healy, um, and because mm. they were so different, they were so different in technique and style. You know, Jack. Jack, I always felt felt like it was like, um, and and you mentioned him earlier. James Foster at his best had this as well. It was like they were keeping to a little drum beat. It was sort of like a little drum beat in there in the background, where their energy was always at this level where you never felt like they were overextending themselves. There was almost this rhythm to what they were doing, and the beautiful kind of timing and elegance to everything. And they can make really hard things just look like 
it was it was easy. There was a real art form to it. Genuinely, as a, as a kid, when I watched Jack Russell keeping that, that's what I I saw. But I loved Healy as well because Ian Healy was different, different technique, different personality, but so precise. You know, he was so precise with every movement, every his glove work, his gloves themselves, his pads, everything. He was he was tidy and immaculate. Whereas Jack was this kind of scruffy looking. Um, Jack Russell of sorts, and um, I, I loved, I loved it. I, I loved them for sure. But but today, you know, I I really enjoy watching all wicket keepers, and and I, you know, Emma Stoney's a great one. He he gets mentioned a lot in my book by other wicket keepers, and that's really interesting because you know he you're, you're right. He has received a lot of criticism over the years for his keeping, and he struggled in conditions which are not he's not used to. He struggled keeping in England, for instance, um, but what he's definitely brought to the role is that fast hands. There's a grace about him as well, a kind of grace and a, almost a style to what he's doing, which has really attracted people and other wicket keepers noticed that. Um, I think Josh Butler talks, talks in the book about, it's almost like he had a sixth sense to understand what the batsman was about mm-hmm. to do. And there was an, an, another keeper in the book, Michael Bates, who talks about exactly the same and that that often looks like fast hands. It's actually that he's just anticipated what's about to happen. Um, and there's just, I, you know, cricket's so intricate, isn't it? But wicket keeping is almost the most intricate part of cricket in many ways. And and I think if you love the intricacies of cricket, then you're going to love the intricacies of wicket keeping. As a as a wicket keeper myself, I I will not disagree with that at all. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I think the one other question around uh wicket keeping that uh, I, I guess I always think is you know something that I've learned over the years is you know I used to always worry about hands and how my hands are moving but really it's the feet that make or break how well you're doing behind and you know the ground that you cover um would you agree with that or do you think that sort of varies with conditions as well uh because you know over the years I've always been taught to cover the ground minimize diving um and that really makes your job easier yeah, I don't disagree with that. I do think it, it it depends where you're wicket keeping. You know, if you take somewhere like England's a good example, but another place is the West Indies, the Caribbean now, where um, the wickets have become very slow and low, which means you're very close as a wicket keeper. Even when you're standing back, you're closer than you would be than you would be say in Australia. So the time to be able to move with your feet is limited because you're you're much closer. Whereas, you know, if you're keeping in and Perth in Australia, you're so far back that you've got lots of time to move your feet and, and get into position. Um, I think feet work is is paramount. I think body position is really, really important. And so it's not just about moving, it's how you move. Um, and if you look at someone like Ben Folks now, who who um, I think is a, is a world-class wicketkeeper, his body position when he's at his best is exceptional. Um, and so, you know, and, and then you tie into the fact of how close your hands and your, how close your hands and your head are, if they're too far apart, makes it very difficult to, to, to take catches. Um, you've got to wrap all of those things in to it, to be able to be a great keeper. Um, and they're all as important as each other. Um, but that's what, and then they all need to be blended into different conditions, but that's what makes for me, wicket keeping so interesting because it's never it's never straightforward. It's never a simple answer. Well, I'm uh, unlike Mike. I've not really 
kept wicket uh, when I played cricket. Uh, but I've enjoyed watching some of the finest, you know, glovesmen. They do some great work, uh, you know, in international cricket or franchise cricket. Uh, so thank you for shedding some light on that uh, on that wonderful world of wicket keeping. And I can't wait to check it out. Uh, for our listeners. Uh, Please uh, follow Luke on Twitter at Luke underscore Suds. Uh, check out his book, Welcome to the Wonderful uh, World of Wicked Keepers. You can find the link uh, to his Amazon page in our episode show notes. But Luke, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Absolute pleasure. Honestly, really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Last Wicked. This podcast is a Cricket Guys production featuring your host, Benny, Mayank, Nish, and Himanish. For more details, please visit thelastwicket.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, do let a friend know, rate, and subscribe on your platform of choice. Follow us on your social media feeds and leave us a voice message if you would like to share your thoughts with us. Thank you again for listening. And from all of us here at The Last Wicket, stay safe and stay healthy. Stay healthy.